For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? Good morning. Like Jason said, my name is Tim Frost. I'm one of the pastors up at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg. So bring your greetings from a sister church in our denomination. So greetings. There you go. Um, we're, uh, it's really uh, fun to be down here. I know some of you, some of you are very familiar, some I've known for almost 20 years. Um, uh, I think back to being in college with Rick. We were freshmen together at JMU. Actually, we were freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. We, all, we did the whole thing together. Um, so I've known Rick and Jesse for a long time, and uh, Jason as well, and, and others of you too. So it's always fun to be down here with you guys. We're going to be picking up in uh, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning. We've been in Galatians. Galatians is a fantastic book. I, I love it in terms of the, the emphasis on grace versus uh, justification by the law. That's justification by faith alone. Well, where, where we are leading up to chapter 5 here is previously at the very end of chapter 4, Paul uses an allegory uh, using both uh, Sarah and Hagar and their children. And he refers to uh, these two sons, one as the son of the flesh relating to the law, and one as the son of the promise, relating to uh, faith and faith in God's promise. In doing so, and and throughout Galatians, as he builds his case here with with the Galatian church, Paul does not negate the law. He's not saying the law is bad, it has no use. Rather, what, what Paul is saying is the law cannot bring righteousness. That adherence to the law cannot be the basis for our righteousness, but rather it's through faith in the promise of God and His provision, which is revealed in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. Would you stand? We're going to read Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. And I am reading from uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, this morning. So if it's not the same one as you, you'll get the gist. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Do you pray with me? God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would teach us. This is your holy word given to your people that we might know you and know how to honor and please you. pray that you would teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, apply these words to our lives, to the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. There is uh, there's little, if anything, that our culture values as much as this idea of freedom. Right? Uh, One sociologist said this about Americans' value of freedom. 
He said, freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. Yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon one, being free of arbitrary authority in work, family, and political life. We value this idea of autonomy, of being a law unto ourselves, being able to do whatever we want, unhindered from any societal or moral restraint. And so we tend to think of freedom as being free to do as we want. We see this all over. If you're a parent, you might see this in your children. Or if you have teenagers or college students, you probably see it in different ways there. Uh, my wife and I have a two-year-old daughter, so this is all in, encompassing of our, our life and worldview right now. Um, we, we see this idea of freedom uh, in lots of different avenues. One in particular is when, uh, when my daughter takes a bath and we get her out and we're, we're drying her off and getting ready to put uh, the enslaving device known as a diaper on her. And uh, the minute we turn our back to grab or reach for the diaper, she bolts. She loves what we call naked time, right? And she will run around that house hiding everywhere, trying not to be put back under the law, the confining strictures of the diaper. Now, if you're a parent of a young one, you know what we're talking about. It's that idea of just the freedom to do what they want and to be what they want. Maybe if you're not in the, in the stage of diapers and little kids, maybe you're thinking, I just want to be free from this boss. I wish I could work and do exactly as I want within my work. Or maybe you have a heavy foot and you know of a very straight stretch of road and you know what the sign says in terms of what a, a proper speed should be. But you think, but nobody's looking. I want to do what I want to do. Let's go, baby. <laughs> and you put the pedal to the metal. Right? In every avenue of life, there are different things where you want to say, you know, I know what people say is right and good and true, but I want to live as how I want to live. So when we come to a passage now in Galatians in the Bible that talks about for freedom that Christ set us free, we need to come to an understanding of what a biblical understanding of freedom is and strip away some of our cultural understandings of freedom. We have to put away our misconceptions and begin to understand what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word freedom. So as we look at, at verse 1 there in chapter 5, where it says, For freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's look at what freedom actually is. What is this freedom that Paul is referring to? I, w- I want to talk about what it is not first, okay? When Paul says it's for freedom that Christ set us free, it is not a freedom that releases us from the confines of morality. Okay? Oftentimes we love to be uh, a piecemeal Christian. We love to take little verses out and take them out of context and say, See, look, Paul says it's for freedom that Christ set us free. I no longer have to worry about the law of God. I no longer have to worry about that God has a way for us to live. I'm free to do whatever I... No. (laughs) That's actually not what Paul is saying. It's not free from the confines of morality. It's a different kind of freedom. It's not doing whatever we want at any given moment. It's not a freedom from any authority. And it's not complete quarantine from the effects of sin and death. The freedom doesn't mean we're going to have it easy. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we're no longer going to suffer. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that we want. That's not what this freedom is talking about when Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, what is this freedom? This freedom is rooted in a past action in the work of Christ that is now complete that frees us from the condemnation of fear. Fear of the law that leads to eternal death. It's a freedom from the condemnation of the law. A freedom from the enslaving power of sin and being ruled by sin. Uh, think, think about it this way. 
Uh, I, I know, Rick, and I know that looking at the cross-training materials, you probably have heard the categories of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or it might be creation, fall, Rick, is it redemption, restoration, is that the language you guys use here? Wh- whatever you want to use. Um, in creation, mankind was perfectly able to not sin and also able to sin. It was, it was the only time in, in history so far where mankind was, had perfect free will to choose to sin or not to sin. Once Adam and Eve sinned, and sin now rules, we are called uh, that we are enslaved to sin. So in the category of the, the biblical category of fall, meaning life under sin, uh, now, now get this, you've got to follow closely. Um, in the fall, we are able to sin and not able not to sin. You, you got that? We, we, we're, I can sin, and the other side is I'm actually not able to resist sin because the Bible says we are enslaved to sin. Now people say, well, well, well we can do good, right? Well... We are always ruled by what our greatest desire is. And under sin, our greatest desires are always going to be sinful and selfish. And we will always choose sin. So when we are in sin, we are enslaved to our selfish desires. And we are able to sin, not able not to sin. Well, the beauty of the cross and the good news of redemption is this. In that, we are able not to sin and able to sin again. We are now at a place again where we can resist sin. Sin no longer enslaves us in Christ. And we look forward to the day of the redemption or the consummation or the restoration when we're able not to sin and not able to sin. I know it's kind of convoluted, but we're able not to sin and not able to sin is what we're moving toward. So we live in that tension now of the fall and redemption where uh, outside of Christ we are enslaved to sin and in Christ we actually have the ability to resist sin. We are free from that enslaving power of sin. So when Paul says... It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He is referring to that ability to resist our sinful nature, to be enslaved by our selfish desires. That we are now free once again with a will that can please and choose to please oh God, uh, please God through obedience. When Paul says it's freedom, it's freedom from eternal death. It's a granting of eternal life and freedom in Christ from the consequences of our sin and rebellion. It's a freedom from sin, the condemnation of the law, and a freedom from the punishment of that, which is death, ultimate, eternal, spiritual death. It's a freeing us up to live and operate the way that we were created within the confines that God established in creation. So when Paul says, you are free, it doesn't mean we are unhinged completely from the laws of nature and morality. Just in the very sense that we can never be free from the law of gravity... We're never free from God's moral order of things he created. But we are now free from the fact that the law no longer condemns us. But now within the freedom of Christ we can say, I know now how best to live within how God has operated. And the law actually is no longer a judge and a condemning agent. But it now shows me how to please God. And I'm actually able to do that through the Spirit. Not on my own works. It's a great, great freedom that Paul talks about here in Galatians. It's being released from our enslavement to disobedience and into the ability to walk in obedience in accordance with how God has prescribed for us to find true joy. Obedience to the law of God. Freedom in Christ still contains boundaries, but they are there to show us life. And that is so counterintuitive to us. We think freedom is is the removing of all boundaries and all laws. We can do whatever we want. But it's not. It's freedom to actually live within those boundaries in a way that brings true life and flourishing and thriving. 
Think back to when um, my, my daughter was uh, an infant, and we brought her home. And uh, one of the things they teach uh, first-time parents, maybe they do this with, with every child, is they teach you in the hospital how to wrap your baby up like a burrito. They call it swaddling, but it's basically a burrito wrap on your baby, which is, as, as a man and as a father, it's kind of fun. Um, and I was really skeptical of the swaddle at first. I know there's lots of different views on swaddling, but I do know this, that when my daughter was free in the sense that she was unencumbered by the swaddle, her arms and legs would flail all over the crib. And what would happen to her is in her freedom, she would actually work herself up into a frenzy and not calm down and actually not thrive as a baby because she wasn't comforted. So freedom for her actually was actually the opposite, doing the opposite of what we would want. Her freedom without any boundaries was not allowing her to thrive. So what we would do is we do the quick burrito wrap, lay her back down, and within a minute or two, in the comfort of those boundaries, she felt secure and warm and safe, and she would settle down, and she would actually sleep for like 45 minutes. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> and so I, as, as I think about the swaddle, I, I, was, I mean, there's amazing lessons in life as you walk through different stages of life, and you think, God is teaching me things in the, in the very simplistic things of swaddling a baby. Uh, it helped me understand the, the use of the law. Uh, the, the beauty of being free within the boundaries that God establishes for us. My daughter was more free to thrive and to sleep and become healthy and to grow when she had boundaries placed on her than if we just said, you know, do whatever you want, Addie. You're a baby unto yourself and you can do whatever you want. That would have been unkind to her. And so the boundaries and the freeing, they freed her up. And so when Paul says it is for freedom that Christ set us free... It's a freedom to live and walk and operate within the confines of how God has established us to thrive. Where we can actually do that. We actually have the ability in Christ through the Spirit to now see the law as something that is good and delightful. Rather than as something that is condemning us and pointing us towards our inability to please God. It's why the psalmist can say, I delight in the law of the Lord. If you ever read the psalms and you read that and go, I just don't get that. I hate the law. Well, in Christ, we can learn to love the law because it shows us how best to please God. And we, through the Spirit, can now do that. But see, the thing is, we often confuse this idea that the law is showing us how to best live out our righteousness rather than the law is a way to earn our righteousness. When we confuse this all of the time and we go back and forth between uh, obedience is a way to live out my freedom in Christ versus obedience is why God loves me. And it's, it's sinister and it's subtle and it creeps into our lives daily. Thinking God loves me because this, this, and this. Rather than saying God loves me fully, therefore I can please him in this, this, and this. What's first? Is your identity rooted in Christ and the freedom in him? And all your actions flow out of that? Or is it all of your actions are what your identity is based on? And it's subtle. Which is exactly why when Paul says it's for freedom that Christ set us free, the very next thing he says is this. Stand firm, therefore. We, we think, you know, if, if, uh, if freedom is, is by grace, you know, if salvation is by grace alone, why would Paul call us to do anything? Well, it's because we are so quick to fall back into the temptations of believing that what we do matters toward our salvation and our right standing before God. 
Freedom does not mean freedom from attack and temptation. Freedom in Christ does not mean that everything is going to be easy. And so Paul says, stand firm from the temptation to fall back into a works-based mentality, thinking I can add anything to what Christ has already done. And so he says to actively push against the temptations and the attacks that would lead us back into this slavery of thinking that we're good enough. Because once we go back to that, we are obligated to do the whole law. And Paul has said this throughout all of uh, the letters to the Galatians. Back in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to believe such a thing? And he even begins his letter in chapter 1 by saying this, You have quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're deserting the grace of Christ for another gospel, meaning Jesus plus something else. And so he says, stand firm. It's, it's actually a, a military term of kind of thinking of a military standing firm against the onslaught of, of another army. He's saying, stand firm because the attack is going to be strong. Stand in the freedom of living in the grace of Christ. Or to, or to stand firm against things that would entice us towards slavery. Things that in appearance are pleasing, but in the end are destructive. We're enticed because... There's something good and tangible, and in an appearance it seems right. And so we tend toward back to the thinking, yes, Jesus plus something else. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to uh, restrict certain things from your diet. Um, I look around and see some of you drinking coffee. Anybody ever tried to quit coffee? How'd that go for you? Uh, I actually am not a coffee drinker, and that's not a self-righteous thing. I just don't like the taste. Um, But what I do like is I like Coca-Cola. And what Coke and coffee have in common is that wonderful thing called caffeine. Ever try to get cut caffeine out of your diet? Maybe you've actually reached a place of freedom from caffeine. Does it mean the temptation of caffeine is still gone? That you never ever struggle when you see somebody drinking coffee or a mocha latte or you go, to, go drive by, you know, the, the 15 Starbucks? Um, maybe there's only, how many are here in Stanton? One, okay. The one Starbucks. <laughs> it's okay, we have two in Harrisonburg. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting there. Um, I know that drinking water is way better than drinking Coke. And when I get to a place in my life when I have removed Coke from my system, and I'm on a water-only diet, that my body actually th- does better. I actually thrive. That's actually how I'm created. And yet, when I go to a restaurant, and I just see the logo of Coca-Cola, I get the shakes. <laughs> I start thinking about the sweet nectar of Coca-Cola. And I am tempted, and I don't resist as much as I ought. Even in our freedom, we still are going to be tempted. You see, our propensity to want to add things to the gospel is astounding. Even though we have freedom in Christ where our works do not add up towards our justification before the Lord, we are always going to be tempted towards what seems to be sweet nectar of works-based religion. And in the end, is ultimately death. It seems as natural as me choosing Coke over water way too many times. We desperately want to add something. We want to do something. We want to have a part in our salvation. We, we want something tangible. Yeah, I know the gospel is free, but what am I supposed to do? How can I... And I think that part of it is because in our normal relationships, peer-to-peer and human-to-human, so much of how we relate to each other is works-based. What can you do for me? One of the studies uh, uh, a sociologist did about youth and parents 
realized it was something like 90% of interactions that teenagers had with adults was in some sort of system where the teenagers had to do something for the adult to find approval. A student has to get good enough grades. Uh, a player on a team has to be good enough for the coach to like so he can play. If you're working at a, at a, in a place of employment, you have to do good enough so the employer likes you and, and gives you your pay and keeps you employed there. About 90% of interactions with youth and adults were performance-based. It's no wonder that we struggle and wrestle with this idea of well, how do we get right with God? It must be something I do. Is my performance good enough for God to accept me? We fall back again and again to this struggle. The stakes are really high. And the temptations are real to go back to an old way of thinking. So Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery. He uses this example, uh, this illustration of, of a yoke. Uh, now, a yoke is not something that I think most of us deal with in, an, in our normal lives. If you're a farmer, you may uh, come across this more. A yoke is just something that would bind animals together to work a field. You think about oxen plowing a field and they have that yoke that goes around their necks and around their shoulders and binds them together so that they are working together. But they are now bound. They have to go where the other one goes as they work the field. And Paul calls this idea of works-based religion, of adding something to the gospel, that you are now being yoked in slavery to this. That if you are looking to the law, to your works... As a source of your justification, your right standing with God, you are now bound in slavery to the law, and it's going to be your condemnation. If you think that you can add anything to the gospel, you are binding yourself, and we are binding ourselves to this idea of having to be good enough. And if you struggle with perfectionism, with performance-based identity, we get this. That it is a never-ending taskmaster of wondering, am I good enough? Am I good-looking enough? Am I talented enough? Do I make enough money? Am I good enough mom? Am I good enough dad? Am I good enough uh, boss, employer? Am I... Those questions of am I good enough, am I good enough, will drive us crazy. If we bind ourselves to the law as a source for our justification, it will only condemn us. And this is something that was going on in the Galatian church that was being brought in here, saying it's Christ plus circumcision. This was something that was going on as the church was beginning to organize after Christ's death and resurrection. And, and, the, and the disciples and apostles are going out and planting new churches. You have a group called the Judaizers, who are Christians, uh, who are trying to say you have to be a Christian and adhere to the entire law, the Mosaic law. Meaning all the rituals, all the Jewish festivals, and even all of the Jewish customs down to circumcision. If you want to be a Christian, you have to do this, 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 and this. And it's actually what one of the first councils uh, that the church and the elders got together in Jerusalem to discuss where the Judaizers were saying circumcision was a requirement for salvation. If you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. Peter refers to this, uh, the idea of the law as a means of keeping their justification and righteousness. He says this in Acts 15.10. Peter says, it's a yoke. Again, he uses that idea of a yoke. He says it's a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That if you're saying it's Christ plus anything else, we cannot bear that. Paul reiterates this in Galatians 3 when he says, All who are bound to the law are under a curse. 
that idea of being bound, of being yoked to the law, is this. The law will only reveal, it's like a mirror. It reveals God's holiness and it reveals our inability to be perfect. And if we are yoked to the law as a means for our righteousness, we are going to be condemned. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus anything is a non-gospel. We'll be condemned by it. We will be enslaved by the very thing that we think is giving us righteousness. If we think that Jesus plus something else, whatever that something else is, is going to enslave us and define us and own us. And I've got to tell you this, whatever standard you have as Jesus plus this, you fail that standard too. Uh, let me ask you this. What are you putting your hope of righteousness in? Jesus plus church attendance? Congratulations, you're here. Well done. Uh, is it Jesus plus quiet times? How good are your quiet times? Are they good enough? What is good enough? How do you know? How about this Jesus plus homeschool? Or Jesus plus public school? Whatever your thoughts are there. Jesus plus voting Republican? Jesus plus voting Democrat? Or Libertarian? Or other? Jesus plus organic, free-range, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan? Uh, I mean, I know there's a lot more I could add to that. Jesus plus anything else is resorting back to the law. Whatever standard we're holding ourselves or others to for our righteousness before men and before God is garbage. It is not going to get you anywhere in the sight of God. It is Jesus alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. If we add anything to that, Paul says we are condemned. That we are going to, we are going to live, have to live by that standard, not only by that standard, but by the entire law. And even in that, when we talk about Jesus plus, do you ever adhere to your own rules perfectly? Do you never compromise? We, our own actions show us that we're condemned even by the very laws we create. And so then Paul, for the rest of this part in chapter 5, he starts to unpack the consequences for slipping into a works-based religion. Uh, in verse 2, he says this, Look, I, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's strong language. He's saying if you are accepting Jesus plus anything else, Christ is worthless to you. You don't need Christ because you're, you're going to have to stand on your own two feet before God. In Galatians 2, Paul said this very same thing. He said, if salvation is by works, Jesus died in vain. If you think you can do something to add to your salvation, you don't need Jesus. You stand before God and figure out how well you're doing. You don't need Jesus if you're going to add to the gospel. To look to our obedience as grounds for our justification, it binds us to uphold the entire law. And thus makes Christ's perfect obedience obsolete on our behalf. You see, Christ's obedience, his perfect work, was either all comprehensive and perfect, and it needs nothing else, or it's ineffective. There's no Christ plus. It's either Christ alone, or it's us. We don't need him. There's no Christ and then a supplement of our own good works. By appealing to circumcision, or really appealing to anything else as a basis for righteousness before God, we are stating that we, what we do matters towards salvation. Now, you need to hear this. What we do absolutely matters. How we live absolutely matters. But it's a result of 
not a cause of our salvation. Do you hear that? That's a huge difference. How you live is a result of your standing before God, not as a basis for your standing before God. And Paul actually unpacks this a little bit in Ephesians 2, when he says, It is for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. And then here's where works fit in now. Now that that salvation is by grace alone that no one may boast, then he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear that? The good works God has already prepared for us to walk in. We are Christ's workmanship. Now, when we do good works, we are walking in a way that God has already prepared for us to demonstrate who we are in Him. Not as a way to say, God, am I good enough? Do you accept me now? But it's a way to say, God, you have accepted me now. I walk in obedience to show you your glory and your love and to demonstrate your character to the world. There's a huge difference in how we live. Our freedom leads to right practice. Our right practice doesn't lead to freedom. Paul goes on in verse 3 and says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You see, to appeal to circumcision would mean that we are now appealing to good works for our right standing before God. And he says, if we appeal even to this one thing, circumcision, this sign that the covenant people of God had in the old covenant, that we now have to adhere to the entire law. And that should be really scary for us. Think about just the Ten Commandments. How you doing? How you doing? How am I doing? Not good. Not good. And so if we appeal even to one basis of thinking, am I good enough? God says, you have to appeal to the entire law. How are you doing? In Deuteronomy 27, uh, it says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Meaning, if you do not, if we're appealing to the law and we don't do it, we're cursed, we're condemned, we're cut off. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails even in one point, he's become accountable for all of it. We fail even in one point, the whole law, the weight of the whole law condemns us. See, before Christ, circumcision marked out God's people, people who were under his law. The law was a mirror of God's holiness. It was a reflection of our inability. But it pointed to them their need by faith in God's provision to provide someone that could do what they could not do. To make up for their inadequacies, to make up for our inadequacies. Circumcision pointed to faith in God's provision. It was uh, what, what, the, what the physical act of circumcision pointed toward was the circumcision of the heart. It, it's like when we baptize an infant or, or, or an adult, baptism itself does not save anybody. What baptism points to is the baptism of the Spirit, where the Spirit works in our heart and gives us new life. And so to appeal to the physical act of circumcision uh, is appealing to just the the, the sign, but not the substance. Uh, The Old Testament even speaks to what circumcision pointed toward. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, said this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The act of circumcision was pointing towards the spiritual reality of God working faith in them, a circumcision of the hearts. Uh, Jeremiah 9.25 says, uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who am circumcised only in the flesh. Meaning there was no heart change. 
So, for the Galatian church to be told it's Jesus plus physical circumcision, it's negating even what the Old Testament says. It's not the physical act of circumcision that saves. It's the work of the Spirit, the circumcision of the heart, faith in God's promised salvation in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, faith in what God has already fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. To appeal to circumcision was to appeal just to the act of it, a work a works-based righteousness rather than what it signified. The promise of God through faith. And so he goes on in verse 4 and says this, You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. He's linking this uh, linguistically even where he says, Circumcision, the cutting off of flesh, leads to separation, the severing, the cutting off of a relationship with God. If you're appealing to a physical sign only, a work that you can do, you will be severed from the grace that is in Christ because you think you're doing it on your own. You think you're adding anything to it. Trusting in works means we discredit the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, what I don't want you to hear from this is is that you can lose your salvation. Some would read this verse 4 and say, Wow, uh, somebody is being severed from Christ. They're falling away from grace. It's not one who's losing salvation. We know uh, from Scripture and from just uh, looking around, uh, maybe this church is no exception, that there are many who would profess faith in God. And we would call that the visible church. All who profess faith in Christ and their children. But we know that not all who profess faith in Christ truly have saving faith. So when Scripture speaks of those who fall away, it would be those who we would say are part of the visible church, those who have professed faith but have never truly believed. And what Paul is speaking to here is one who has tasted of and seen the goodness of the gospel, but rather than believing by faith, truly in the salvation by faith alone, is being persuaded and led astray by this idea of Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus anything else. And Paul ends his time, uh, or this section here in Galatians, with, with a positive forward momentum of what uh, righteousness by faith looks like. In verse 5, he says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In in verse 5, when he says, We eagerly wait for the hope of our righteousness. I love that. Do you get that? He didn't say, We eagerly work for the hope of our righteousness. There is a passive waiting and resting in the Lord of his active obedience on our behalf. We are not working for the hope, but resting in what already is ours in Christ Jesus. When we, use, when we hear the word hope, too, this is another one of those words we have to kind of de-Americanize. We use the word hope as, as sort of a, a wish. Uh, I could say something like this. I hope it snows 12 inches this week. And I really mean that. I want one good snow this year. And many, you might be going, get out of here. <laughs> uh, I hope. But when I say I hope, I have no ability to say that's going to happen. It's just, it's wishful thinking. But when scripture says, we eagerly wait for the hope of our righteousness, that hope is not wishful thinking. That hope is something that is confident, that we can be uh, assured of, 
It is certain. It's a rooted hope. It's an encouragement and a strengthening based on certainty. That our hope of righteousness is this. Christ Jesus has been revealed on earth, has lived and died and risen, and one day he comes again to restore all things. And we eagerly await the hope of our righteousness, which is the renewal of all things one day. It's future-looking, rooted in the finished work of Christ, which encourages us presently. And in a little bit, when we celebrate communion, that is part of what communion does for us. It is rooted in the past, future-looking, but presently encouraging and nourishing us today. It's the hope of our righteousness. In verse 6, when, when Paul says that it is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that count for anything in Christ. He's saying this, neither circumcision, which was a Jewish, Jewish religious ritual, which now, if you're trying to add that to Christianity, is just moralism, it's just ritualism, it's superstition, it's adding something that doesn't need to be added. So neither circumcision nor uncircumcision to a, to a culture that had prior to the gospel was a pagan culture, a, an idol-worshiping culture. He's saying neither you know, moralism and religiosity nor pagan unbelief count for anything in Christ. Neither uh, good works nor bad works count. They're both equally condemning. Because apart from Christ, even our good works are bad works. None of them earn our righteousness before God. Paul says it's faith working through love. This is it. It's the fruit of justifying faith. Meaning this. Uh, Jesus says this often in, in the Gospels, that you will know them by their fruits. A good tree will bear good fruit, and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. And here Paul is saying, it is faith working itself through love. That you will know those who believe by faith alone, who are freed in the gospel of Jesus Christ through how they love. Through how they live their lives in response to the gospel. The practice of living in freedom is this, to live a life that demonstrates the love of Christ to our neighbors, to our families, and ultimately to him uh, who rules all things. It is faith working itself through how we love and how we live. Our actions demonstrate our faith. They prove our faith. They exhibit our faith. They don't earn God's love, but rather they demonstrate God's love. When I, uh, when I get ready to leave the house in the morning to go to work, I have a kind of a ritual with, with my daughter. Um, I'll say, okay, Addie, Dad's got to go to work. Come give me a hug. And I'll get down on my knees, and, and I'll get like this, and she'll come and she'll, she'll give me a hug. And often, the way she does it, for whatever reason, she runs right up to me, and then she turns around and backs up into my hug, right? So then I'm hugging her like this, because then once I release my arm, she's ready to run, right? Um, but we do, we do that. We do, we do a hug, and then I say, okay, high five. And then pound, pound. And then we do a head bump. She's always done a head bump. She, from when she was like six months old, she started doing this little head bump thing. She did a head bump, and then, she, she, then, I, then I give her a kiss. Then I release her. Then she goes about six steps. I say, Addie, look at Dad. I say, love you. And then she goes like this. She can't quite do that yet. But she does this, and then she turns into a wave and says, bye. My daughter knows that she's fully loved. Now, there are a lot of mornings before that ritual and that routine that my daughter has not been obedient, that I want to wring her neck. But she does not earn my love based upon her obedience or disobedience. She is fully, fully loved. There's nothing she can do that would separate her from my love for her. I will always... Ask her to hug me. 
high five me, pound it, head bump, kiss, I love you. That will always be part of our relationship, regardless. If she ever tries to add something to earn my love, that would be so heartbreaking to me. When she is obedient, it demonstrates the love that we have. When she is disobedient, I love her regardless. Brothers and sisters, the freedom that is ours in Christ is this. God already loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you would believe by faith in the provision of God, you will be saved, and your right standing will be based on Christ's obedience, not your ability to do good, which is an inability, actually. When you obey and when you pursue God, it does not increase your standing before God. It demonstrates your appreciation and your love for the act of obedience of Christ on your behalf. And it is a way to demonstrate the love of the Father for you. Therefore, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and resist the temptation to think that our works earn God's love. And rather, live in the freedom that says, I am fully loved. And now, regardless of if I mess up or if I don't, I can move forward in the grace of the Lord and please Him and honor Him in all that I do. And that frees us up as people to not be under condemnation, but to live in grace, to treat others with grace, and to appreciate what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, it's, it's unfathomable to think about the way that you have loved us unconditionally, the way that you have uh, provided a way for us to be in relationship for you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that is ours in Christ. God, I pray for those of us, myself included, who continue to struggle and wrestle with pride and arrogance and thinking that we add something to the gospel. Would you convict us? Would you help us stand firm against that temptation to believe that? that we would rest solely on the hope of our righteousness, which is the perfect obedience of Christ, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection, defeating of death and now reigning and ruling on high. May that be our hope and our source of encouragement as we move forward. We pray these things in his name. Amen.